Welcome to Let It Lopate at Large. I'm Let It Lopate. When Ronald Reagan announced in 1984 that he wanted to send a teacher into space, over 11,000 applied. Kristen McAuliffe, a 36-year-old mother of two who was a high school social studies teacher in Concord, New Hampshire, was the one selected to, to join NASA's 25th space mission, scheduled to launch from Cape Canaveral on January 28, 1986. The mission ended in tragedy when the ship, the Challenger, exploded, killing all seven members aboard. Although there was extensive media coverage of the event, a presidential commission, and congressional hearings, much of the story has remained relatively unreported. And uh, that uh, a uh, and that has, uh, to some degree, been remedied by. Uh, uh, Kevin Cook in his latest book, uh, which is called uh, The Burning Blue, The Untold Story of Chris McAuliffe and NASA's Challenger Disaster. In it, he reveals what really happened on that ill-fated day. It's published by Henry Holt and Company, and it brings Kevin Cook to our show now. Or Welcome. The current. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Leonard. Let's get right into it. You've uncovered errors and corner cutting that led uh, an overconfident space agency to launch a crew that had no chance to escape. Why do you think, despite all the attention that's been paid to this tragic event, there were still so many blanks left for you to fill in? I think there's one of those moments that's very vivid that, that we remember as, as a nation. I certainly remember where I was standing. I encountered so many people who can tell you right where they were when they realized that the challenge under space shuttle, um, the mission was lost and the crew was lost. But I believe it's one of those relatively modern phenomena that so many of us know a little bit about it, but very little beyond what we saw on the television screen. It seemed how many people that were watching that day? Millions. Know how many? Uh, there, it, was, it was not live. Uh, it was not covered live uh, as previous shuttle missions had been Sally Rides, for instance, hmm. uh, but it was very instantly put on television. We saw the replays over and over again. And of course, for millions of school children, it, it was live because they were watching it on televisions that had been wheeled into their, their uh, classrooms because teacher in space, Krista McAuliffe, was going to be teaching lessons, beaming them down from space after the Challenger reached orbit. On, on PBS. Yes. Uh, You're and, right. And there's so many people who remember where they where they were at that moment. I think it's it's a remarkable one of those shared uh, memories that uh, that we have. You're right that the goal of the teacher in space program was to revive public interest in the space program because the public had lost interest in it since the first moon landing in 1969. How many missions had gone up in the intervening years? Well, there were two dozen uh, space shuttle missions. They all came back, brought their crews back safely, even though there was trouble. The engineers knew that uh, there was trouble there. Uh, but I think the very fact that the shuttles kept going up and coming down, generating less interest. In fact, Jerry Seinfeld had a had a routine on the Johnny Carson show that uh, very year in which he said, you know, are, there, are the shuttles still taking place? To rekindle interest, he thought we need to put somebody on there who doesn't want to go. Uh, maybe somebody who would look out the window and say, let me out of here. Uh, the teacher in space program really was invented to bring more eyes 
to the shuttle program. That certainly backfired tragically. But you mentioned Krista McAuliffe becoming the teacher in space. In some ways, she was such a fine choice. She was a great school teacher and, and would have been a great representative for the space program. Was it felt that she brought a certain relatable, unglamorous charm to the adventure? I mean, how was she chosen out of 11,000 applicants? Yes, that's a good way to put it. She she was uh, one of uh, 114 semifinalists who gathered in Washington uh, and had to perform, had to speak to uh, a panel of experts featuring astronauts, featuring Dr. Robert Jarvik, uh, the artificial heart inventor, members of the military, Oddly enough, an NBA star, Wes Unseld of the uh, Washington uh, Bullets at the time, and uh, and Pam Dauber, who was Robin Williams' co-star, of course, on Mork and Mindy, who was there really just to uh, convey the idea that the person who became the teacher in space was going to become going to become a celebrity overnight and was going to have to deal with that. Krista McAuliffe was well equipped to deal with that because she was really herself on screen. Uh, you mentioned that uh, she was going to conduct a few science lessons to be broadcast on PBS, keep a journal, prepare lesson plans for teachers, but uh, most of all, to serve as an inspiration for students. Yes, that's true. As she was in her classroom, she she had a frankly feminist uh, class in uh, at Concord High School in uh, Concord, New Hampshire, called the American Woman. She taught all kinds of uh, many classes. That was a particular favorite of hers. And she had the students act out moments from from the story of Rosa Parks, from Amelia Earhart, from Sally Ride uh, as a means of giving them an idea that that big world outside the classroom is out there waiting for you. That's one reason she applied to become the teacher in space. She told the kids, I've got to challenge myself if I tell you to do that. I've got to try to go out and do new things, even if they might be frightening to me. This is a person who got queasy on carnival rides. Now she's applying to go up on the space shuttle, the most complicated machine ever built. She went into it to the, after applying and told the uh, classes, you know, you, you may think this is funny, but I'm going to try to become the teacher in space. It was a remarkable story that uh, she went through. She finds herself at the White House at a dinner at the White House, sitting next to the president who does a remarkable thing. He stands up. Of course, he says, watch this. President Reagan says uh, after that, he stands up. Moments later, of course, everyone in the room stands up, as the president does. He looks down to Krista McAuliffe and says, how's that for a trick? <laughs> well, there's a, a sense that it was promoted in the press and TV to some degree as uh, a public relations stunt for the, for the space program. In a way, it was a public relations stunt. It was meant to bring new attention to the shuttle program. Of course, NASA was always interested from the early Life magazine days when uh, the Mercury 7 were on the cover of Life magazine and their wives were on the cover of Life magazine uh, a week later. Uh, NASA relied on public interest and public interest was waning. It was really increased by the teacher in space program. Uh, Krista McAuliffe was very effective. She, she, after years and years of having a cup of tea and grading papers with the Johnny Carson program on TV in the background, she found herself on the other side of the television screen. She was on the Carson show while the band plays her on to Off We Go Into the Wild Blue Yonder. Uh, a, a remarkable 
thing for her, her to go through. And one thing that impressed me very much was with the, the grace with which she went through and becoming a, a media celebrity practically overnight uh, to the degree that Pam Dauber ever did practically uh, and, and keeping her wits about her and promoting her cause, which was that of school teachers. But you say that it was also intended to help President Reagan win teachers votes in the 1984 election. Why the, the votes of teachers in particular? Well, it, it wasn't a bad idea for him at that point, because, uh, of course, the Reagan administration came in and was known as a, a budget cutting administration. Uh, each agency was going to have to demonstrate it was deserving of the funding it was going to get. There were congressional funding hearings always in the near future. Uh, President Reagan had been called the Scrooge of education during his his campaign against Walter Mondale and the National Education Association, which represented three million teachers, the biggest labor union in the country, endorsed Walter Mondale. It was therefore not a bad idea for President Reagan to say, as the first civilian in space, I'm going to choose a teacher, a member of the proud teaching profession. I believe he was sincere. He admired teachers. He came to admire Krista McAuliffe. It was a good way also to appeal to school teachers in an election year. But it, it wasn't her field. So did uh, McAuliffe struggle to retain the necessary information? She did. And uh, there were a lot of science teachers, of course, who were, who were candidates uh, as the field was winnowed down to 10. Uh, she and another, uh, another school teacher felt overmatched by the teachers who, who had advanced degrees, who one was a mountaineer, another one was going to take a boat uh, across the Atlantic. She saw herself as a relatively small town school teacher. What she brought to it was her honesty. Um, the science, as, as one of the uh, science teachers who was not chosen as the teacher in space reasoned, uh, NASA had science up the wazoo. Uh, he mm -hmm. said that what, what they were looking for was someone who would be good on television, as Krista McAuliffe was, not through any fakery, but solely by being naturally herself on screen. Um, and, and I think she achieved her goal. I think it's fascinating that had this disaster not happened, there was another quote unquote public relations stunt completely teed up the journalist in space program that NASA was already winnowing down candidates who had applied, including Walter Cronkite, a young Geraldo Rivera, Norman Mailer applied to go on the space shuttle the, as the journalist in space. Uh, and the person with the best line about that, I think, was uh, George Will, uh, the great columnist who said that uh, he supported the journalist in space program because Earth would only be better with one fewer journalist <laughs> on it. <laughs> Probably a good idea. It's good that I didn't <laughs> apply. Uh, now you, you write that she was trained to eat, sleep and go to the bathroom in space, but not to interact with any of the 1300 switches and dials on the flight deck. Uh, do you think she did she ever express any doubts or talk about feeling a bit overwhelmed? She did. Uh, she she said uh, a line at her own expense, as she often did. My job is going to be on the on the way up on the ascent to orbit is going to be to stay out of the way of the crew members who had to deal with all of those 1300 switches and dials on the flight deck. She was on the mid deck below where there aren't even windows. There aren't dials. Uh, you are cargo on the way up and on the way down. Um, the fellow who 
told me the line about uh, your her job is going to be to eat and sleep and go to the bathroom in space. Frank Hughes was uh, the trainer of uh, flight crews, another person who came to uh, admire Krista McAuliffe. Uh, they had previous experience with these people in the payload specialist program who were not astronauts. Uh, they were scientists who did various uh, uh, experiments in space. Partly that was a reward to people who worked at Hughes and, and other aerospace firms um, to be able to fly uh, with real astronaut crews. And they'd had a few experiences. One of the payload specialists kind of became entranced by the hatch and would say to the commander, if we open that hatch, all the air goes out and we go flying out. What a what a remarkable thing to think about. They became worried enough about this passenger that they put a lock <laughs> on the hatch until they got back to work. <laughs> My guest on today's London Lopate at Large is Kevin Cook, whose latest book is The Burning Blue, the untold story of Chris McCullough and NASA's Challenger disaster, published by Henry Holt and Company. Uh, you said earlier this was the 25th space shuttle flight, but it was also the 10th flight for the Challenger orbiter. Had there been any problems on the previous missions for, the, for that ship? There had been, uh, and and with the other uh, shuttles as well, the uh, the other orbiters, as they were called, there were four. They were practically identical. Uh, Challenger was, uh, uh, as as you say, a veteran of many space flights. What happened is when the orbiters returned to Earth to be reused, they were, of course, exhaustively examined, and there were signs that the rocket boosters. Which, which propelled this huge, complicated, very hefty machine into orbit through what NASA people call the gravity well of the Earth. These are the most powerful rockets ever built. Those are the twin, it's such a strange contraption. When we look closely at a space shuttle, the, the orbiter, which is shaped a little bit like an, like an orca, is strapped to the back of its giant orange fuel tank, which holds liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen. And on either side of that fuel tank are the rocket boosters. Well, those rocket boosters were made by Morton Thiokol, a chemical company in Utah, and they had shown signs of leaking, uh, especially in cold weather. Uh, and this was going to be a very cold morning. The Challenger uh, launched. Uh, there were signs. Uh, as the great physicist Richard Feynman uh, realized later when he was a member of the presidential commission investigating what went wrong, NASA had made a, a full, a, an error, a, a, had, had taken a fallacy as truth, had, had reasoned that those 24 missions that went before all went off all right. Nothing terrible happened, no disasters. So despite the fact that the engineers urged them not to launch on that cold morning of January 28th of 86, the managers overruled the engineers. They rolled the dice again, or as Feynman put it, uh, they were playing roulette, playing Russian roulette with uh, these space shuttles. And uh, finally, the disaster did take place on the uh, Challenger mission that January morning. Well, hadn't the mission been delayed a number of months before that day in January and also delayed that very day as well that morning? It had been, and it had been delayed the day before and scrubbed due to a debacle that owed to a bolt in the hatch door, which could have been replaced at the local hardware store if, any, if there happened to have been a hardware store on the launch pad. But of <laughs> course, there's nobody within 
miles because it's so dangerous to be so close. Everything is evacuated. NASA workers had to race out in a van, come back with a, an electrical uh, appliance, an electrical uh, screwdriver. Um, and they come back, the batteries aren't working. This becomes a debacle that only adds to the pressure to launch Challenger the next day. You have you have Dan Rather and Peter Jennings uh, and Tom Brokaw on television saying, as in, in Rather's words, another embarrassment for NASA. Uh, that adds to the pressure to get this bird in the air because they're lined up. We're gonna have more than a dozen more shuttle missions uh, that year. Of course, there would be none because the uh, engineers were overruled. And finally, the, uh, the uh, disaster that they anticipated did take place that day. You mentioned that it was the extreme cold. Actually, uh, in the morning, it was very cold. But even when they decided to, to launch, it was slightly below freezing. Uh, uh, so, and, and the cold could compromise the equipment. So, but there was just too much pressure, you're saying, from NASA and the White House to postpone the mission despite those misgivings? It, it was because no one could say for certain that there is going to be a disaster. It's, it's one of those things that uh, these engineers might have felt, well felt uh, abashed if uh, the uh, mission had gone ahead and nothing terrible happened. Uh, what occurred at NASA in that time, and what's been called the normalization of deviance, um, is that the the responsibility, the, the weight of, of uh, responsibility to say this mission is at too great a risk had shifted. Before it had been all of the various aspects, the, the engineers, the different parties at NASA had to agree, we're saying go, we're saying yes, we're confident, it is safe to launch. Suddenly, in a teleconference the night before this frozen morning at Cape Canaveral, a teleconference between uh, Kennedy Space Center at Cape Canaveral uh, with um, the uh, the uh, NASA rocketry division in Huntsville, Alabama, and also at uh, Morton Thiokol in, in uh, Utah, the responsibility changed so that the engineers were called on to prove that the hmm. shuttle would fail. They couldn't prove 100% that it would fail, and they were they were commanded, convinced finally, to step down and uh, put on, as one manager said, it's time to take off your engineering hat and put on a managerial hat. They did okay uh, the launch uh, with the results that, uh, that really should never have happened. Uh, of course, later on, there's a, a commission, the presidential commission, in which it was astronaut Sally Ride who very carefully uh, passed along crucial information uh, that demonstrated to the commissioners, including Feynman uh, and, and Neil Armstrong and many others, um, that NASA had known that low temperatures were very strongly correlated with bad performance by these O-rings. There was also reluctance to cancel the broadcast of Teacher in Space to the, the school children during class time. That's true. It was going to be a, a wonderful, in NASA's view, uh, nationwide classroom experience, the, the ultimate uh, classroom experience for millions of school children all over the country. There are big old fashioned televisions being rolled into classrooms. Uh, and and there, that did add to the time pressure. It's important to have this uh, mission happen on a weekday so that when Krista McAuliffe beams her lessons down. 
children are in school rather than uh, rather than off on the weekend. Now, so much attention uh, was paid to Krista McAuliffe. Um, had had the other crew members uh, uh, been largely overlooked? They had, and and even today, I believe they have. That's that's one thing that I share with so many uh, Americans when I began. An interesting group. And I, I, I gather from somebody who um, I, I've spoken to who uh, was part of NASA at the time. Uh, they the the people in NASA were really upset by the way that it was just totally Krista McAuliffe. Yes, it was a remarkably diverse crew. All astronauts uh, are are remarkable people, or they wouldn't become astronauts in the first place. But it's important to remember the first seventy three astronauts were white men. This group of astronauts came from the uh, 1978 class, which uh, the Carter administration had said this should be a diverse class. Uh, it included the first black astronauts and included the first female astronauts, Sally Ride being the first American woman in space, uh, and Judith Resnick, a member of the Challenger uh, crew, became the uh, next uh, woman in space. Uh, and and she was also the first that, Jewish astronaut. She was, and, and, and she she was one of those people. She scored a sixteen hundred on her SATs. She she moved on to uh, to skip the, her masters to go directly to a doctoral program. One of those people. I came to see all astronauts as death defying valedictorians uh, during working on this book. But she was certainly one of the most remarkable people one would ever encounter. And then there was Ronald McNair, the, the second black astronaut, and Ellison Onizuka, the first Asian-American and Buddhist in space. Absolutely true. There have been plenty of Buddhists since because, uh, or um, I don't know whether they've been whether China sent up Buddhists, but they've sent up any number of Asians. And, and it, it truly is. It's one it's often been described to me as a Star Trek crew. Uh, Ellison Onizuka grew up in Hawaii, uh, climbing up uh, coconut palms, and he actually volunteered if we ever have any trouble with the 50-foot-long robot arm that the space shuttle uses to pluck satellites from the cargo bay and drop them into orbit, he would climb out on and, and do the repairs himself. He was the jokester in the crew. They had a barbecue where Commander Dick Scobie, he and pilot Mike Smith were both remarkable pilots. Uh, Ellison Onizuka would rib him about uh, dropping a hamburger during a uh, during a barbecue, he said, this man can operate the most complicated machine ever built, but uh, with a spatula, look out below. Uh, you, you mentioned Ronald McNair. Ronald McNair, NASA's premier flying, nuclear, flying laser physicist, uh, who was also a skilled, accomplished saxophone player who gigged with touring bands coming through Houston and a black belt in karate who would who would smash concrete blocks with a single karate chop, and then with ease, lucidly describe the physics of how he did it. Well, and they, uh, I'm sure for many of our listeners, this is the first time they've been hearing most of those names. The, the, the Challenger broke apart just 73 seconds into its flight. I, this, I know it's complicated, but what happened? Well, what happened was that at the moment of launch, there was a puff of dark smoke from the right-hand rocket booster. These rocket boosters had had trouble before, particularly in cold weather. This was a, an icy morning. Literally, 
two foot icicles hanging off the launch platform in, in pre-launch preparations. You had NASA workers using broomsticks to knock icicles off the shuttle stack. Um, after that puff of smoke, um, remarkably enough, a piece of solid fuel from inside the rocket booster fell and briefly plugged the leak until the rising accelerating shuttle stack encounters turbulence as always happens. Uh, that shook it loose. Uh, to be brief, the leak in the right-hand rocket booster uh, led to a plume of flame that acted like a blowtorch. It, uh, it burned right through the thin exterior tank of the, uh, of, uh, the uh, external tank, the fuel tank, that's the giant orange fuel tank that carries all the liquid hydrogen and oxygen, two of the most flammable explosive substances uh, known to uh, humankind. After the blowtorch from the rocket booster uh, went through the external tank, that's caused the explosion that we saw. So many of us believed that that was the end of the astronauts when, in fact, the shuttle, the crew compartment sheared off the rest of the orbiter and carried on on sheer momentum, rising another 20 some thousand feet before gravity brought it back to Earth. And the pilot, uh, astronaut Mike Smith, said, uh-oh, as the shuttle uh, he got did. an he unexpected did. boost, two, two million pounds of thrust from the explosion of the external tank. That's right. He seems to have been the one on the right-hand side. They had panoramic windows on the flight deck. He seems to be the one who was aware. For a long time, the, uh, the last transmission was believed to have been Roger go at throttle up, which was what Commander Scobie said. Afterward, it was discovered that the last audio had been from pilot Mike Smith. He saw something happening and he said, uh-oh. And uh, as, as I found out later, there are two minutes and 45 seconds remaining uh, of story to tell what happened between that explosion and the moment that the orbiter finally struck the Atlantic at 207 miles per hour. And that's what wound up really destroying the. the that is what whole uh, killed the astronauts, and they yeah. they had no means of escape. There had been uh, ejection seats in the first shuttle uh, missions, but they were removed quietly later. It wasn't practical once you have a huge crew. The first shuttle missions had only the commander and the pilot. Later, now you have so many people. It would have been utterly impractical to have uh, ejection seats in all of the seats. There were no parachutes. Later on, there would, there would be escape uh, means built into later shuttle flights, but there was no escape from this one. It's often been described as uh, a failure of the O-rings. What are the O-rings? The O-rings are the seals between, we talked about the rocket boosters. The rocket boosters are put together like a, a stack of coffee cans. They each hold enormously flammable explosive rocket fuel. And when they are assembled at uh, Cape uh, at Cape Kennedy, as it was called then, at uh, Canaveral, um, we were able to see that just as if you put rubber seals in between coffee cans and try to stack them, it's the rubber seals that that leave an opportunity for a leak to happen. And that's what was faulty. The seals that held the rocket boosters together 
were where the leak occurred, as physicist uh, Richard Feynman demonstrated so beautifully in the uh, Presidential Commission, uh, a, a great moment of science on television. He had uh, taken a piece of the same sort of rubber out of a model of the rocket, put it in the ice water that the commissioners had in front of them to show that this rubber would stiffen and not form such a tight seal in cold weather, which is the proximate reason the disaster occurred. So NASA scientists knew that O-rings might cause uh, explosive fuel leakage in, in very cold temperatures. They certainly did. There had been memos saying, uh, this is a warning, this is a red flag, help. There was a task force at uh, Morton Thiokol in Utah studying what was called the O-ring problem. But the pressure to launch to keep these shuttles going uh, was so great that the managers uh, overruled the engineers and uh, the task force, of course, uh, had very uh, little to do after that, after the presidential commission took over, after the worst uh, disaster uh, of the shuttle uh, program. Of course, there would be another one later when Columbia, uh, after, after things became routine again, uh, the similar things happened before the disaster uh, occurred to the shuttle Columbia. But there was no fire inside the, the crew cabin. There was not. And remarkably uh, well made that uh, the orbiter, of course, had silicon sheathing on the outside, lightweight silicon chips that had to protect it through the, the furious fire of reentry. So it was a, a wonderful insulator against any fire that's going on outside the orbiter. There was not a fire on the inside of the orbiter. Of course, a fire inside is something that they had trained and, and prepared for that particular eventuality. Uh, that's one of the things that happens in, in simulations. There's a fire here. What are you going to do? Uh, there is no practice for uh, such a disastrous occurrence as happened in this case. And yet there is clear evidence that the astronauts acted after the explosion during those two minutes and 45 seconds to try to save themselves and the mission and each other. Uh, and, and I think that's one thing that makes this more than something tragic. It makes their behavior heroic. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Kevin Cook, whose latest book is The Burning Blue, the untold story of Kristen McAuliffe and NASA's Challenger disaster. It's published by Henry Holt and Company. And this uh, is a topic that's quite different from your previous books, uh, which one of, of which is about baseball. What got you started working on it? 
I had written a book about uh, uh, several books about sports. Um, one book about a, a notorious uh, murder, the murder of Kitty Genovese mm -hmm. in 1964, which bore some similarities to this one. I think that writing about professional athletes is one good way to train for writing about astronauts. Uh, there are fewer, more accomplished, more uh, competitive people than, uh, than either pro athletes or uh, astronauts. Uh, much like the Kitty Genovese book, this, this is one that it struck me that the story behind the story was utterly compelling, that people believed that they knew certain things, a few details about a remarkable story that transfixed the whole country. But everything that led up to that, even things that followed the uh, the disaster itself and the personalities involved are so worth knowing uh, that uh, that's what it carried me through. You know, as, as you well know, you, it's quite a commitment when one takes on a project like this. You're devoting a couple of years of your life to it and you'd better be pretty fascinated by it. So it was these people, uh, their their competitive nature, the importance of what they did. Uh, I think that made it, uh, in some ways, at least a little bit similar to uh, to writing about sports. Well, you take your readers inside the shuttle for those uh, nearly three minutes after the explosion, uh, when, when the astronauts were still surviving. How were you able to learn so many of the details, other than that Mike Smith said, uh-oh? It's, uh, it's, it's a wonderful opportunity uh, you mentioned just a moment ago talking to astronauts to, to talk to astronauts about how they train, which is very significant. Um, I, I was uh, as just as a little bit of background. There's a wonderful 3D uh, view of a, the shuttle cockpit uh, that one can zoom in on, move around in, in a wonderful way. That's a great example of uh, technology uh, at uh, the museum in, in Ohio. Uh, where the, uh, there, are, there are so many different uh, aircraft, including uh, the space shuttle simulator. Uh, what helped me reconstruct those two minutes and 45 seconds more than anything else was talking to astronauts. I spoke to astronaut David Hilmers, who was on the following uh, shuttle flight. After two and a half years, they called it the return to flight. And what had changed uh, uh, in those two and a half years, more safety, uh, and, and what they thought had happened uh, had occurred to the previous crew. Uh, Jim Weatherby, who commanded as many shuttle flights as anyone else ever, uh, he is the guru of switchology, a term that I came to love very much, uh, that uh, if you're going to command a space shuttle flight, you need, to, of course, to command all of those dials, all of those switches, all of those uh, readouts, uh, without stopping to think about it. They trained very carefully. Jim Weatherby is what is the man who told me, this is what I would do. This is how, he helped me understand how a commander thinks. It was, these are certainly not the kind of people who are going to panic. So I was very pleased to start to understand to the degree, maybe one one hundredth as much as the astronauts themselves, uh, what to do, which way you reach. Dick Scobie, the commander, would have reached up. The first thing one does when something goes wrong like that is, how are they going to retake command uh, of the vehicle? How can they take manual control? Because the computers are controlling it on the ascent up to orbit. The first thing a commander would do would be to try to retake command himself. Uh, that would not work. There was no power left. So hmm. one goes to the next step 
putting those things together with the help of the astronauts was truly one of the, the most fascinating uh, parts of working on The Burning Blue for me. And you also interviewed scientists and crew members' families. Yes, and it's difficult for them to relive. Uh, Dr. June Scobie Rogers was perhaps the most uh, significant uh, source of all. She was the widow of Commander Dick Scobie. She was the mother hen of the mission. Uh, she was also the one who met with President, Vice President uh, uh, George H. Bush, came down, flew down that very day uh, and met with the families that evening, along with John Glenn. Uh, he gave June Scobie Rogers his, uh, she was just June Scobie then, his personal business card. He stayed in, in contact. He helped. They lined up celebrities. The families banded together to put together something I think is important, a network of challenger centers. As they put it, this is how we're going to make the mission continue. This is what our loved ones would have wanted so that they are, their story didn't end on the 28th of December, 1986. It goes on in these challenger centers where school children go and and have truly enjoyable virtual space missions and learn STEM skills uh, through these missions. Uh, that's a great tribute, I believe, that the families have paid to their loved ones. Uh, and, and by their lights, certainly the, uh, the mission does continue. And part of the reason of telling their story, I think, in the book is I, I hope readers will become aware, we'll look up uh, the Challenger Centers and find out about the good things they do. And, and how extensive were, was the information in, in NASA's archives? Very. NASA has fine archives. One of the delights of going to Washington to uh, go to NASA headquarters and, uh, and work with the very helpful people who bring out what seem to be truckloads of documents that one gets to go through, including memos that haven't been looked at uh, for years, if at all. One of the pleasures of doing that is that you find yourself on the newly renamed Hidden Figures Way. Uh, Margot Lee Shetterly, who wrote the book uh, Hidden Figures, did her research in the same place. The, the book and movie were such great successes uh, that now the street itself is renamed in their honor. The building is named in one of their honors. Um, it, it reminds you that uh, one has a duty to recent history to try to tell it as well as possible. Uh, and uh, the NASA's uh, then historian, recently retired Bill Barry, was a great help to me, um, as were there's a wonderful trove of information uh, at, uh, in Houston at the Johnson Space Center called the uh, Oral History Project, uh, that to people interested in this subject, uh, it's open to the public. They're voluminous. There's still a great deal of living memory about all facets of the space program. The Oral History Program is, is, a, is a fabulous uh, uh, ongoing project that uh, NASA has contributed to uh, history. And did you also draw upon uh, Christopher McAuliffe's correspondence and family papers? I did. Her, her mother donated uh, her papers to uh, the uh, Framingham University. It was Framingham State University. It was uh, where Krista uh, attended. She graduated in uh, 1970. Um, it was, of course, a remarkable thing for the town of Framingham, for the town of Concord, New Hampshire, uh, for the, her alma mater uh, when she became the teacher in space. And it's, it's striking and touching to 
read her own correspondence in her careful cursive. It's worth knowing this is how good a teacher, a school teacher, how dedicated Krista McAuliffe was, that on the airplane called NASA 2, it was ferrying astronauts from Houston, where they trained, to Cape Canaveral, where they were going to fly. On that relatively short flight from Houston to Florida, Krista McAuliffe was writing letters of recommendation for her students, for her seniors <laughs> who needed uh, to uh, have a letter of recommendation from the teacher in space in hopes of getting into uh, the colleges of their choice. Many of those people were inspired to become teachers through her example. You're listening to London Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Kevin Cook, whose latest book is The Burning Blue, The Untold Story of Krista McAuliffe and NASA's Challenger Disaster. It's published by Henry Holton Company. You mentioned the uh, Presidential Commission, which um, began in February 1986, including Richard Feynman. Uh, didn't it have a mandate from President Reagan not to embarrass NASA? Indeed, it did. William Rogers was the uh, head of the commission, and um, he opened the proceedings by saying, we're not here to revisit the past. Uh, hmm. The whole idea uh, was definitely we want to find out uh, what occurred here. But uh, President Reagan, who was a great booster of the uh, uh, of the space program, a, a true believer uh, of the space program uh, and, and its great achievements, uh, as, as well as its disasters, um, and, and who went on that evening on national television to speak eloquently about the, the crew. Uh, he did speak more privately to um, Commissioner uh, Rogers and said, yeah, we, whatever you do, don't embarrass NASA. The idea was to get space shuttles flying again as soon as possible. They, the NASA was sincere in wanting to uh, correct its errors, I believe, but already within practically within hours of this disaster that the country witnessed together, there was already talk about now there's going to be pressure to get the next shuttle flying. Uh, that's a dangerous sort of pressure to have. Well, wasn't NASA embarrassed when serious revelations emerged about what it knew about mechanical problems, how decisions were made, and, and why the launch proceeded despite the very cold weather? Terribly embarrassed. And as often happens, certain people were demoted. Others were allowed to retire early. Uh, and, and NASA announced a new commitment to safety. This periodically takes place. There was a new commitment to safety. Um, and, and I think the, the people who announced uh, new directions, uh, the members of the commission, they, they were sincere. Let's find out what happened. In this case, uh, we don't want to point fingers necessarily, but we want to improve safety in the future. That happens until spaceflight becomes routine again and leads to further disasters, mm -hmm. which is one thing that I believe this book can help teach, and we all need to remember, we're on the brink of a new exciting era in space exploration. There are going to be more missions to the moon. There's going to be Mars mission, uh, and it's there's going to be schedule pressure again. There are going to be malfunctions again, uh, and there needs to be respect for the engineers, for any member of the uh, whole equation that says, we need to stop, we need to, to reevaluate before we make a wrong move that's going to cost us the lives of uh, astronauts.
Well, a 32-month hiatus was imposed and reforms were put into place. But why weren't they enough to prevent the crash of the Columbia in 2003? I think it was a resumption of, uh, of ops normal, as folks in NASA mm. like to say. Uh, there the was same a, old? Yeah, there, yes, there is a fellow named Mike Cinelli who runs what's called the uh, Lessons Learned Program at NASA. And, and what he compares it to is a, a terrible disaster like this. We have a presidential commission um, and, and new resolutions. It's like driving past a terrible wreck on the highway. You see the smoke and fire, you see the ambulances. And after that, for the next 15 minutes, you're driving with your hands at 10 and two on the steering wheel. And as he says, time passes, nothing bad occurs. Pretty soon you've got one foot out the window and the other foot on the steering wheel until another disaster, another presidential commission. These things recur. Uh, I think that is the reason that the same, the normalization of deviance occurred again um, and the uh, corners were cut again that cost the lives. Although Columbia was a, a different um, situation in, in many ways. Uh, but again, it cost the lives of seven astronauts. Uh, I hope that this story will be some help. As Elon Musk talks about, we've heard him say people are going to die on the way to Mars. Perhaps that's true because it is by nature risky, but our job is to, uh, to call a timeout if possible to support those who do. And that's what the Lessons Learned Program at NASA currently does uh, to encourage the, not only uh, the respect of uh, diversity of opinion, uh, just as much as diversity of uh, race, creed, and sexual orientation. Was the uh, the crash of Columbia also caused by O-ring? Uh, it was not. Uh, it was, uh, uh, some of the insulation fell off on the launch. Um, that was known. It was not believed uh, at the time. While you know they were orbiting, uh, Columbia went into orbit, and it was on reentry that Columbia burned up because some of the insulation had chipped off. It would have been a, a mightily massive undertaking to send up or to organize and send up a rescue mission while Columbia was orbiting. But we can compare it to Apollo 13, a near disaster, when it was enough to call time out to communicate between Houston and the the astronauts in space to give the sheer ingenuity of astronauts and the whole space program working together a chance to figure out a way to save the crew and the mission. That did not happen in Columbia as it happened in Apollo 13. In the case of the Challenger, weren't lawsuits filed by surviving family members? There were. Uh, it's difficult to sue the government. Uh, and, and since some members of the crew were military, that complicates matters. There were uh, there were settlements paid. Uh, uh, and uh, the uh, the uh, lawsuits trailed on for years. They didn't get very much attention because the I believe because the space program was getting very little attention in those months uh, of hiatus when there were no shuttles flying uh, and uh, and the families. The, many of the families still supported full, full heartedly the space program, partly as they reasoned, we didn't want our loved ones to have died for nothing. Our loved ones would have wanted the space program to continue. They wanted to continue. They didn't want to go up against NASA either. They wanted uh, 
the mission to continue. They wanted future missions to go on because they believed that that's what um, the astronauts, uh, including Krista McAuliffe, would have wanted. I'm not sure Krista McAuliffe's family uh, felt exactly that same way, but Steve McAuliffe, um, her husband, was a very big, important part, along with Dr. June Scobie Rogers, of putting together, building, and supporting the Challenger Centers, which still serve have, have served five million school children uh, up to this day and continue to do so. There's a very tight knit NASA family in Houston. Now, why is it in Houston and not near Cape Canaveral? Well, the land was cheap. Uh, when when they put uh, uh, they they had to move some cows some some cattle uh, away uh, to build it, it, it. I think it was also important to uh, to have separate NASA wanted separate command centers separate hubs. Rocketry is in Huntsville, Alabama, which has a long rocketry history going back to Werner von Braun uh, and uh, the Johnson Space Center in Houston. Uh, was put there largely because Lyndon Johnson uh, would have wanted it there. That uh, that Texas was was LBJ's um, home state, uh, and and that was a nod to him. Uh, Cape Canaveral is important uh, in terms of um, uh, longitude as well. Uh, it helps the trajectory of, of flights and also, of course, because of the weather. The weather is generally good. That certainly wasn't true on January 28th of 86, but the weather is generally favorable for space flights. Uh, and then that's why they launch out of uh, uh, Cape Canaveral. Now, Jeff Bezos is scheduled to take a trip into space next yeah. month when Blue Origin, the, the rocket company he founded over 20 years ago, conducts its first human space flight. Should I assume he uh, won't be making the same mistakes that NASA made with Challenger and Columbia? I, I, I think there will be great attention to safety. But um, as, as, as Musk has said, as, as Bezos knows, um, there's no such thing as, as perfect safety. So there, there is some danger whenever one uh, attempts to fly into space. Um, that's one thing that... Uh, uh, is is going to be an important uh, factor as we progress. How much expense is more safety worth? These these uh, new projects going to Mars is going to be extremely expensive, an enormous commitment. You know, the, the reason that the space shuttle happened in the first place was because you can't just go from going to the moon to going to Mars. It's two hundred and sometimes uh, farther away. So something in Earth orbit that could potentially be reusable. Um, it was initially claimed that the space shuttle program would pay for itself. Uh, it did not come close. Um, as we advance into a whole new era and, and face new challenges, uh, I think it's going to be a remarkably interesting thing to follow um, how much risk is tolerated uh, as we go forward into still more complex missions that uh, make a new sort of history. Have we seen problems in uh, the, the space programs of other countries? Um, well, the, the Soviet space program had many, many problems that were kept under wraps. One thing that uh, John Kennedy uh, said around the time that, that he famously announced that by the time this decade is out, we want to uh, put a man on the moon. Um, the difference, he said, between America's space program and the Soviet Union, as it was then, of course, space program was 
that uh, we are open about our failures, that we talk about them, that we show them and we address them. Uh, that was to some degree uh, the case with uh, Challenger, with the presidential commission that came after it. Also with Columbia, uh, I, I think transparency is going to be significant uh, because secrecy isn't good science. Uh, tell that to Vladimir Putin. Uh, <laughs> sure. My great thanks to you for being on our show today. Kevin Cook's latest book is The Burning Blue, the untold story of Chris McAuliffe and NASA's Challenger disaster, published by Henry Holt and Company. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. Thank you, Leonard. It's a pleasure to be with you. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you would like to hear more of our one-hour interviews on one subject, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. And we're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. You can also find links to our more than 500 past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to consider supporting WBAI so we can continue to bring you the show uh, on weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to step up and make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now. Um, consider becoming a sustaining member, $10 or more a month. Uh, until you decide you no longer want to do it. It helps us to plan for the future because WBAI relies 100% on listener donations. If you tune in regularly to Let It Lobby at Large, please play your part by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling that number 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950 to keep this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's entirely listener-sponsored, keep us on the air by making a tax-deductible charitable donation. And as I'm sure you uh, can understand, we need your help now more than ever in the week of all the difficulties of the past year. To everyone who's already stepped up to support BAI in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, we thank you very much. And I hope that you'll join us again tomorrow when investigative journalist and regular contributor to our show, Bob Henley, will break down the New York City mayoral race ahead of the primaries coming up next Tuesday. See you then.